You can think of anxiety as a form of raw electricity, and you get it for free. It's like having a solar panel on the inside of your body. I don't know how or what it's using, I guess everything. Instead of just sunlight, it's collecting a little bit of everything you experience, and it's giving you a feeling of electricity just shooting through your body. And it's difficult to differentiate the physical sensation of anxiety from the mental side of it. And I've probably told this story on here at least twice, but it's worth telling again. And when I first started meditating, I had an experience where I was in my little house, my old house, very small house, and it was late at night, probably about six months to a year after I had had this experience where I found out I was deathly allergic to bee stings. And there's no bee in my house that I know of, because I would, I would have heard it buzzing. And I'm meditating, I'm getting into a pretty tranquil place. It was around the time that meditation started to really, you know, the, around the time that I really started to have some breakthroughs with it. And out of nowhere, I just hear this loud buzzing. Clearly a bee, you know, you learn, once you learn that you're deathly allergic to bees, you really pick up on the, the differences, the distinction between a fly buzz and a bee buzz. Kind of like the difference between a, a beer buzz and a weed buzz. But you really start to pick up on those, <laughs> those details. And even when you hear a fly and you think it's a fly, you still worry. Because you just want to make sure, until you see that thing, until you see that that thing's all black and doesn't have any yellow stripes, you just want to make sure. So I heard this bee buzzing. And uh, so I get up, I'm like, you know... One thing that's cool about meditation is you can you can try to work through distractions and it's helpful because you know meditation is something that you want to learn how to apply to your daily life when you're not just sitting there with your eyes closed or staring at an object whatever sort of meditation you do. So you want to be able to do it so it's nice sometimes to try to meditate through a distraction whether you whether you can actually get through it or get around it or whether you even need to bother trying doesn't really matter. But so I hear this bee buzzing and there's no way I can just sit there. This is something that I have to get up and check on, you know. I have to get up and see what this is all about. So I get up and it's coming from my kitchen sink, which is this big old rustic, kind of like a farmhouse kitchen sink. And down in the drain, there's a bee. And as far as I'm concerned, it traveled into my house through that drain. This house was very exposed to the elements, but I feel like I would have known if this bee got in some other way. And it turned out it was a big bee. And it was a bumblebee, which I don't know if I'm allergic to. You know, people when I tell people I'm allergic to bee stings, I don't know what kind I'm allergic to. I just know that I don't want to get stung by anything that's, that flies and stings and has yellow stripes of any kind. Call me... Call me bigoted, but you know I follow those those rules. So uh, th there's this huge bee in the drain of my kitchen. So I just I, I think I turned the water on. I did everything I could. You know I've gotten into the mode the last few years. I used to kill spiders whenever I saw them. I try to avoid it unless the spider looks freakish. Unless it's a big spider that looks like it could cause me some damage. Kind of like with the bees. If I feel like I'm threatened in some way, I'll kill a spider, but I try to avoid killing insects, killing bugs these days. 
but bees, I've just got to do something. I can't have a bee in my house. It can be very difficult to herd them outside. So I think I, I just turned this. Since it was in the sink, I think I turned the water on. I might have sprayed it. I don't remember how I killed it. But it produced a bunch of anxiety. One, because there was a bee, a mysterious big bumblebee or something. I don't even know. I, I'm, I'm very bad at classifying bees. But it was one of the biggest bees I've ever seen. And I don't know how it got in my house. The whole thing felt very mysterious. And then when I went back down to meditate, you know, I was just shoot. I had anxiety just shooting through my body. And because I had been in a very meditative state before that, I was able to kind of get back into it where I felt like I was really, you know, I was able to differentiate the anxiety of my mind from the anxiety of my body. And of course it was my mind that produced the anxiety of my body because it is your mind that produces anxiety. But because the the thing that I was worried about, the thing that I was mentally anguish, uh, anxious about had gone away, I knew that the bee wasn't in my house anymore. I wasn't as worried. I was able to kind of, I was no longer mentally that anxious, but the electricity that that produced was just shooting through my body. And I say electricity because that's what it felt like. And I had never really noticed that. You know, you do, when you're anxious, you do feel like you're buzzing. But uh, it just, it seemed to be, come on, Batman. It just, it just, it was this really incredible feeling. Because I was no longer worried, because I was no longer scared or, you know, this bee no longer posed a threat to me. I was able just to focus on the sensation of anxiety and specifically the way it feels in your arms. So I was able just to sit there and instead of trying to get rid of it, I just felt it. And it really, it was almost supernatural feeling to feel this anxiety shooting through my body like electricity. So that's why I say, if you're in a state of anxiety, it almost is like getting electricity for free. It's like your solar, your internal solar panel has absorbed all this stuff around you that caused you some kind of concern or you know made you worry in some way and often it is the past or the future that you're concerned about very rarely is it the present moment I mean sometimes it is a, a mysterious bee that appears in your house when you're just sitting there but often it is something from the past or the future that gives you anxiety and what you have to learn about that what you have to learn about the the past and the future is you're not there no matter how much you think about it, no matter how much you place yourself there through memory or just through ex the expectation of what could happen, you're not there. You're right here. And if you're right here and you're anxious, well, why not use that anxiety to your benefit somehow? And so you, you can learn how to, it's difficult, but you can learn how to just sit with your anxiety and separate it from the mental torture that it that it can put you through. You can separate that. And one way you can do that is it's almost similar to deity yoga, if you're familiar with that. Deity yoga, and of course, it, you know, yoga is a term that's come to mean a very specific type of physical stretching, posing, you know, which is cool and important and I've never done it so I don't know how cool and important it actually is but 
it's something that trying to cross a street here which is its own form of yoga but uh you know it's the term yoga means union and so it's a way of kind of you know union with what well i think union with the everything with god however you want to put it but you know the term yoga of course has come to mean this very specific thing in the west that many people do even though that's only a, a very specific type and the word applies to a lot more and one of those is deity yoga and that means coming into union unifying with this idea of a deity and those deities especially in you know buddhist traditions hindu traditions those deities they often represent certain characteristics certain what we would call emotions whether they be anger hold on i'm gonna pause this while this leaf blower is going on yeah, so many loud things in this world so many loud things including me but yeah getting back to deity yoga you basically visualize this deity and in a particular situation too where you're feeling a certain way you're feeling a fear or a negative emotion and so you visualize this deity that represents that and there are of course specific deities and i don't really get into that i don't really study or know the names of these deities because i'm not a, a formal practitioner of any of this stuff but i have seen where these ideas are universal and so you recognize this let's say it's an emotion or a feeling you're having you recognize that within yourself it's anxiety i did an episode probably a year ago about the deity of stress where i talked about how we let this idea of stress which even though we all know what that feels like it's pretty abstract for something that we all wholly believe in you know it's a sensation that we all wholly believe in but we talk about it no differently than we would a god because it's not truly tangible yeah there are ways that you can measure stress there are ways that you can measure anxiety there are pills you can take but at the same time it's we have deified it in a way and with the power that's, that these ideas like stress and anxiety have over our lives why not call them deities why not think of them as all-powerful in some way or if not all-powerful at least some sort of entity that completely embodies that feeling and anxiety is one of those so you accept that you're feeling anxious you, know, you accept the sensation you don't try to fight it or hide from it but you also visualize this pure manifestation of it outside of you and you recognize that you're also manifesting it within yourself and in doing so you realize there's no distinction between your anxiety and this pure entity this pure you know god this deity that also represents that and in doing so that's the union you find that you are producing this and you're also visualizing this pure manifestation and of course i'm not i'm not a teacher of deity yoga so i may not be explaining it as well as i could but you come into union with the deity 
and you recognize that you are producing it and it is also external to you. And so you come into union. And in, within that union, you'll gain better control. It'll become more manageable at the very least. There is a level of acceptance. And if there's a level of acceptance, well, suddenly you have a lot more, if not room to work with, I would say you have a much larger range of motion now. You might not be able to get rid of that feeling, but you can navigate more within that feeling. And the more you do that, the more control you will have over that feeling, or the more control you, are, you will have over yourself within that feeling. But I do think you become... I do think that you begin to control that feeling too. In the same way that you know you use the lights in your house, you turn devices on, you use the electricity in your house, but you wouldn't necessarily say that you have f full control over it. You know, to some degree it's just there because you pay your electric bill. Because we need it to exist in our modern world. So I think it's a similar way that you can learn how to work with these feelings, these feelings that are almost electric, like anxiety. And I'd say it's very similar to the idea of using the electricity in your house. It's a resource that is now available to you, and anxiety can become a resource. You think about what people want from drugs. They want these drugs that stimulate them. They want to catch a buzz. Uh, they want to feel this electricity, they want to take something, and yet your body is producing this thing. Your body is producing this electric feeling, but you feel like you can't do anything with it even though it's there. So this way of thinking is a way to get a handle on it at the very least. And not to say you won't have episodes where you're overwhelmed with anxiety, but I think doing things like meditating on it you know, you think about meditation, you might think when you're anxious, the last thing that you could possibly do is, med is properly meditate, whatever that means. Whatever it means to properly meditate. But I think somebody who <laughs> is a, you know, a meditation, uh, you know, who has some kind of expertise in meditation w would tell you that that might be the best time to meditate. And of course, there's no proper way there, there are certainly ways that produce certain results. There's certain training for sure, but there's no proper mindset. If you're able to do it, and if you're able to stay aware, if you're, able, if you're able to be present again in that moment when you have the anxiety, and if you can sit there with it and really feel what it's doing for you and to you, let's start with to you, because I think you have to understand what anxiety is doing to you before you can understand what it can do for you. And what it can do for you is stimulate you. Your mind might be racing, but if you can kind of lessen the mental aspect and just take on the physical for what it is, and that might be difficult to do, but I can say that I've done it. I've had experiences in doing that, where I just walk full force into that feeling and laughter, of course, helps. It's one of the reasons why I encourage laughter under any circumstance. You know, if, if you feel that there's an opportunity to laugh, don't do it at somebody's grandma's funeral that you were invited to. Sti you know, stifle that laughter. 
but if you're in your own place, if you're in your own zone, you could be in public, you could be in your house, you could be driving, it doesn't really matter, you could be around people you know that you're comfortable with, you can't afford not to laugh if you feel an opportunity. Whether you have to make an observation, make a joke, or whether you just feel like laughing as it is. More often than not these days, when I laugh, I'll be watching something relatively serious. I'll be watching you know, something or listening to something relatively serious and somebody will say something or I'll see something. And it's not that what I'm actually seeing is funny in and of itself. It's not like it was an attempt at humor. And there's nothing mean-spirited that, you know, it's not that sort of humor either. It, I guess it's just the absurdity. It, it's just the absurdity, and that, that cracks any shell that I have, just being able to laugh at whatever absurdity is going on. And it may not seem absurd if you're caught up in it, kind of like when you're anxious yourself. Because when you're caught up in something that produces anxiety for you, you know, you don't want to joke about it. It seems like, this is serious, guys. You know, this is serious, guys. I'm worrying about the future here. I'm worrying about the future. You know, this is very serious. Or I'm, I'm dwelling on something I said to somebody in the past that I regret. This is serious. It's like, is that serious? <laughs> is some weird prophecy you have about how you fit into some future landscape that isn't here yet? Is that really that serious? Is something that already happened, that didn't go as planned, that you interpreted a certain way, is, you know, is some regret you have, is that really that serious? And if you can think that way about the past and the future, and of course there are things that you're going to worry about, like, you know, your job or your finances or your family, health concerns, there are things that will give you anxiety that's just really hard to shake. But I would say my recent experiences, you know, the last six months, I would say I've managed to do that even then, and I'm not saying that to deify myself here, I'm not trying to say that, you know, I'm the deity of anxiety, although that's exactly what the deity yoga process is, and I actually don't practice it directly. I should say that too. Um, but when you, but but just to explain that process, because I think you can apply it just in a general sense, no matter what you believe. But when you come into union with that deity of whatever it is, you know, whatever. Um, let's go this way, Batman. Let's go this way. No, let's go this way. He thinks. Thing is, we we parked in a different place than we normally park when we make this walk, and he thinks that, and, he, and if he wants to go to the car, he'll he'll just like halt and not he's very stubborn just like i am but he thought the car was somewhere where it isn't so he was heading straight for the spot where the car is not but with this deity yoga idea it's just the idea is you come into union with this deity of something this de what this deity represents this sensation this idea and in, in coming into union with it, you become that deity, and that's how you get control. You gain power, the power of a deity through this process. And like I said, I don't do this directly. I don't actually visualize these Buddhist or Hindu gods. I think they're very interesting, but it's kind of overwhelming. And as somebody who isn't a formal practitioner, I only relate to the idea. I don't necessarily 
follow the exact teachings, but in reading about them and studying them, I've realized that this is something I've found that I do in other ways, and that they teach you in other practices, both spiritual and secular. And a lot of it comes down to accepting whatever it is you're feeling and seeing it as something that is both inside of you and outside of you and finding the harmony between those things. And what's more godlike than harmony, you know? So you can see where people decided to start calling these things deities. Why they decided to start associating deities with certain emotions, with certain sensations, certain characteristics. And this is something that people do with their heroes. It's, it's why kids act out, it's why people role play. They, people hero worship because they're, they're making these people into demigods and they're trying to embody who they think those people are because they think those people have certain characteristics. They think those people are capable of handling, if not specific situations, just this whole life situation thing. So it's one of the reasons why people identify with heroes and hero worship. And that can get kind of murky because often those are people. And it's one of the downfalls of secular thinking is that we project this godlike status onto celebrities, athletes, people who are impressive people, but we lose sight of the fact that they are people and then we get disappointed or we grow up and we realize that these are people and we lose a valuable tool. And that tool is that we can embody these things. We can embody these characteristics. And a very popular form of this, a very popular form of deity yoga, even though he's not represented as a deity really, he does, out of all the characters in the Bible, of course, Jesus is the closest thing to a demigod, a demigod. I never, I never know when to say demi or demi. I'll go with demi, like demi more. Demigod more. My demigod is demi more. Give me more. Give me more demigods. No, but anyway, the whole WWJD, what would Jesus do idea, is the same thing. It's very much the same thing as deity yoga, where you think, you know, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus handle this? You create an image of how this demigod would handle a certain situation or what he would do in a certain situation, and you come into union with that. And it's not that you actually think you are him, if you're sane. You know, it's not that you actually think you are him. It's not that you think you are Jesus when you're doing this, but you are coming into union with that ideal. And in doing that, it gives you a handle on some kind of situation. It directs you in the right place. And if you're saying WWJD, if you're asking that question, what would Jesus do? You're probably in an anxious state. Because why would you why would you search for what this ideal person would do? Why would you wonder what your hero would do if he was in your shoes, if you weren't anxious, if you weren't having some sort of dilemma? 
because otherwise it would just be obvious. So you can see where even that in its own way, and in that in that case, you know, it's different from you know deity yoga because deity yoga involves a broader selection of gods, demigods, deities, however they're they're referred to. But you can see where you know there's multiple deities, many, countless, and they represent different qualities. And you can access them in different situations. Whereas in Christianity, there's this focus on, you know, a particular one where, you know, Jesus embodies all of these qualities. And many of those are what's compassionate, you know, what's, you know, that's kind of his, his main quality seems to be compassion. But it is interesting how that plays out there, too. It is very much a form of deity yoga. And so if you're a Buddhist, if, if you're into that, you're essentially asking yourself, what would the given deity do in this moment? And I don't do this directly, like I said. It's not that I, I sit around thinking this way. But I do have my own way of doing it. And I've, I'm also someone who hasn't really had many heroes. Like, when I was a little kid, I loved... You know, Emmett Smith and these really successful, talented football players. You know, I loved Glenn Danzig. I still do. There are some musicians that I have a lot of respect for. But I, as someone who doesn't really hero worship too much, as someone who doesn't really, um, you know, look at these deities directly, I do find that I have my own form of this deity yoga. Where I do find that I do look at some kind of ideal. And I think that's where your own cultural background can come in, too. I mean, and, and just the people you know in your life. Because we do it with people in our lives as well. Where we can look and say, like, what would this friend of mine that I admire do? If you have a friend who handles certain situations really well. Maybe not all. You know, that's why it's good to have a diverse friend group. And not diverse according to the current political ideology's idea of what diversity is. But I mean people who think differently. People who have different spheres of interest. Whatever that is. And you can think about those friends and sometimes think, oh, what, how would my friend handle this? How would my dad handle this? How would my mom handle this? But I think you have to admire those people. And you should admire the people in your life. For sticking through, you know, for dealing with you, if nothing else. But you can look at those people and both their ups and their downs. And I think that's an interesting side of it, too, with deity yoga and just deities in general. Because, you know, if you look at the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it deals with this a lot. The Tibetan Book of the Dead deals with wrathful and peaceful deities. And these deities are two sides of the same coin, where... The wrathful deity, the wrathful qualities, which aren't necessarily rage and it's not necessarily aggressive wrath, but they tend to be what we would call negative qualities. You know, there's a flip side where there's also the peaceful deity. So there are two sides of the same coin. And it's the... And especially when you're dying, you know, this is taught in the Tibetan Book of the Dead and other, you know, the bardo... It's in these ideas where you try to embody 
you you try to come into you accept if, if you're feeling these negative emotions if you're feeling fear terror anger anxiety if you're feeling these things you come into union with them so that you can control them but you should also want to come into union with the peaceful deities and what they represent because it's it's through union with the peaceful entities through the positive emotions essentially or just the great equanimity more so I think you know I'm not I'm speaking for myself as much as I am anything that I've read or studied but you know it's wanting to find that equanimity I think more than anything and that's why there are two sides of the same coin that's why there are wrathful deities and peaceful benevolent deities because what do you get when you have something that's both wrathful and peaceful or benevolent and the combination is equanimity it's not too far one way or the other it's a balance and so the goal is to find that balance within yourself and you can work through that with these ideas like deity yoga or just by thinking of them in the modern terms you can think of it purely in modern psychological terms and leave deities out of it and just think of the pure emotion that you're feeling and recognizing that there is something universal about that that other people experience this and when they experience that they can describe it very similarly to the way you experience it and so if all of these people are subjectively experiencing these emotions that are objective in the sense that everybody experiences them even if there are differences to people's situations and differences in you know you know we can't we don't know what, what somebody else is feeling but we do communicate and we do describe and we do know that there is something universal about anger and we can recognize it when we see it in someone else and when someone describes their own anger we can recognize that in ourselves. And so if there is this objective anger that is outside of us in the sense that it's universal, it's more than just our experience, well, that's kind of what a deity is. And that's why when you do deity yoga, you would visualize something outside of yourself. That's why you would visualize the God. And, and when I say outside of yourself, it could even be inside of you. I don't know. Like I said, I don't, I don't know how this is taught exactly. I've read about it, but I... I'm not a practitioner, certainly not a teacher of this. It's just something I find very interesting and, and it draws parallels to you know, psychology, to Christianity. I'm sure countless other places if I were to really think of it. Um, but, uh, but the fact that we all experience this thing to some degree in our own way kind of makes it a deity. It makes it something larger that we all tap into even though it's coming from within us but the fact that it is something larger and it is coming from within us too that is where the union comes in that is where the yoga comes in very fascinating I just find this very fascinating and in reading about it it's I, I immediately related to it I immediately re immediately related to that sort of union that feeling of coming into union and as somebody who I would say, you know, one of my afflictions, especially in years past, was some form of anxiety. And, you know, learning how to come into union with, you know, finding the union between my own feeling of that with this, this larger, uh, the larger headspace that that also fits into.
that you could call a deity, but you could just say it's something larger, something that's also beyond you. Because the weird thing about anxiety in particular is that when I'm feeling really anxious, I do feel kind of like an antenna that's buzzing. I feel like my whole body is an antenna that is picking up some signal. And I can't seem to... It's, it's, just, it's almost like when you hear a radio signal in your uh, car or just on a boombox, you pick up a radio signal and it's not completely coming through. You can hear some things, but not everything. And it's very similar to, to a racing mind where your mind is just filled with thoughts and you can't focus on any particular one, except maybe one little, one little snippet that keeps coming through. And often with something like anxiety, that little snippet is the source of your anxiety. It's the thought that is giving you the most trouble, whatever it is you're worrying about, whatever it is you're ruminating about. But uh, yeah, I would say when I've dealt with particularly strong circumstantial episodes of anxiety, it really does feel like my whole being is an antenna. But again, it's electricity. You're buzzing. And you can use that, you know, in the same way that you drink coffee or take drugs. You can kind of isolate the physical sensation and use that to your benefit. And you might not be able to do all the things that you would do if you weren't anxious. You might not, it might not be the right time to read a book and, and especially if you want to absorb what you're reading, especially if it requires your full attention, your full focus. You know, maybe that's something you can try to work through. I'm still struggling with that one. Because if I'm feeling anxious, even if I'm just settled in my anxiety and I'm kind of having fun with it, I still find that reading is difficult. Retaining, especially. I'll be reading and my mind is going elsewhere. And even if it's not a negative elsewhere, it's still just difficult to retain. It's difficult to study what I'm reading. So there might be certain activities that you can't do, just like if you were tired. And that's a good way to think of these things. If you're feeling anxious, you know, you don't, as long as your life isn't ruled by it, I think if your life is ruled by it, maybe you have to do more work in some other way, maybe get some help. But you could think of it when you experience anxiety, think of it almost like, oh, I'm tired. I'm happy. I'm this right now. And those things all have their own deities too. It's not just stress. There's not just the de the modern deity of stress. There's also the deities of joy and happiness. And often those are the other side of the coin from that feeling that's negative. So just something you know I've learned, and I'll probably have more to say about this sometime, as usual. But for the time being, I think I'll leave it at this. But you can use these things. You can find a way to use these things. They can be tools. And it's a good way to think of just sensations and experiences that you're having. Is they're not just things that are happening to you. But they are things that you can use to your benefit. Or at the very least, accept. And if you accept them, you can potentially use them. And that's a fun thing to do. It's fun when you take something that was giving you a lot of trouble and you find that it actually has a use. So why not give it some credit and call it a deity?
why not just call it a deity? It's fun. <laughs> it's fun to think of stress as a deity. It's fun to think of anxiety as a deity. And it's fun to think of joy and ecstasy as, as other sides of that coin too. What would deity do? Oh yeah, I just want to tack one thought that was important to this. And I think I mentioned how the deities that you might identify with, it might be better suited for your own cultural heritage. And for me, that's where I identify the most with my own pagan heritage. Odinism, I don't think of it as an ism, but Norse mythology. That's where Norse mythology comes in for me, and the deities that I tend to identify with are Odin and Thor. Why try to find something more obscure than that? You know, as much as I try to scrape the bottom and find the weird things growing there, sometimes you just got to go with the big ones. In the same way that the Every Night's a School Night show sometimes just has to play Elvis or Roy Orbison or Dolly Parton. When you need a powerful deity to identify with and your cultural heritage brings you to the the Norse gods, you know, Odin and Thor, you can't really get better than that. Although, you know, the trickster too. I'd say I certainly identify with Loki now and again. <laughs> I'd say I'm no stranger to Loki either. And others, I'm sure, if I thought about it. But the big ones, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of the big ones just because they're obvious. You know, Christians say, what would Jesus do? They don't get into every obscure apostle. Sometimes it's better just to say, hey, what would the, the main guy do? And in Norse mythology, Odin, an aspect of Odin that I identify with heavily is his ability to disguise himself his ability to wear different hats and fully embody the things that he is disguising himself as to the point where he's not even really in disguise. Because Odin will, he will become something, he will embody something on his visits to the, to the human world and he may appear in any number of ways and he may associate with any kind of person of any class. Just because he's the, the main god doesn't mean that he's above associating with virtually anybody and everybody. And when he takes on a certain role, when Odin wears a certain hat, he becomes that fully. And that's sort of what you have to do in life. So that's something that I identify deeply with. And it might not be one that's as emotionally rooted, but I do feel like seeing Odin that way and identifying with Odin that way, coming into union, is, is almost a form of that, that deity yoga that you'll see in Buddhism or Hinduism or, you know, any of these beliefs that where you associate yourself with a particular god in order to fulfill a certain purpose at the very least. And it's not that I go around thinking, oh, you know, when I have to when I have to clock into work, I, I see myself as Odin playing a role or, or, you know, it's not something you really have to think of, but it's worth bringing to mind now and again. And it does empower you. And deity yoga, it sounds pretty damn empowering to me. Maybe I shouldn't have said damn. There's nothing damned about it. Nothing damned about it.
but that's an aspect of Odin that I deeply identify with. It's his ability to disguise himself to the point where he's no longer even in a disguise. And that relates to Jesus as well, which is, there's the reference to Jesus in disguise. And that's an approach you can take to difficult people in your life. And you can treat people who seem like beggars, somebody who's very unsightly, somebody who repels you in some way. And you can tell yourself that that person might be Jesus in disguise. That person could be Odin in disguise. So it's important to treat people well for that reason, or to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, not you know, not give in, but it's that idea of total compassion I talked about in yesterday's episode too, where the idea of total compassion or this all-encompassing compassion that is taught in so many spiritual practices, it can't be discriminatory. <laughs> it can't be discriminatory. By its very nature, all-encompassing compassion doesn't allow you to be discriminatory. And of course you are. Of course your survival depends on it. So yesterday when I was saying, oh, should you hate Hitler? It's like, obviously most people would, it's no question. Of course they do. But I think that your mind can expand to the point, and I don't know that mine has. I wouldn't say it has. But I think that somebody's mind can expand to the point where they can have compassion for virtually anybody. Past, present, or future. You know, I don't, I don't, stay with me, buddy. Stay with me. Hey. But yeah, I think, I think that you don't even have to be living at the same time as somebody. And often it's easier to be discriminatory when someone is from the past. And we see where that happens all the time now. The tearing down of statues, which, you know, I'm not going to give an opinion on. I'm not attached to any statue. But you can see what people are trying to do. And it's, it's why people tend to look back on artists or thinkers and say, Oh, that guy believed something back then that we don't agree with now. So we've got to be opposed to him. We can't possibly read his books. We can't possibly have compassion for him. You know, you see that a lot. And so we try to discriminate past, present, and future. I'd have to think more of a better example of how we do that in the future. I guess that's sort of utopianism. You know, the utopianism that people tend to have of trying to change things now, the whole like right side of history idea, that kind of thing kind of plays into this discriminatory future. Like we need a future that doesn't include this, this, and this. Um, but the idea of total compassion, it, it's really recognizing that that person who's very difficult, that coworker that you dislike, that guy on the street, that, that junkie or whoever it is that makes you want to judge them, because it might not be that you need to have this person in your life. You know, that's where survival comes in. And the discriminatory nature of survival is, is important if you want to live. But it's also helpful to think beyond that, too. Because sometimes I think that our discriminatory nature and our utopianism and desire to survive sometimes clouds our judgment. And we don't always see people for what they actually are. And we demonize people. So that idea of seeing people as if they were Jesus in disguise, or Odin for that matter, and also embodying that ourselves. So that itself is a form of union. That itself is a form of this deity yoga, 
where it's not just that other people could represent this deity, this demigod, this god. It's that we represent that and these other people could too. Because if we can represent that, certainly other people can. And as for other gods, you know, Thor, I think of Thor as when I need a... You know, when I want to get into that warrior mode. You know, when the, that physical warrior mode. When I feel like I need physical strength. When I want to embody a imposing but heroic presence wherever I'm going. I don't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to be like Thor. I'm going to be like Thor. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think about it that clearly. But I do wear my Thor's hammer. I do wear my Thor's hammer pendant that I got as a teenager in Ballard, Washington, which was a where many Scandinavian immigrants settled, including my relatives, after coming here. And I bought it at a Scandinavian gift shop run by an old... I don't remember if they were... Nor, I think they were Norwegian, but it was an elderly couple then. This is probably 2001, maybe 2002 at the latest. And they were elderly then in a community, Ballard, Washington, which at the time still had a pretty strong Scandinavian presence. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been there. But uh, this necklace, and I'm wearing it right now, I've been wearing it a lot lately, because I feel like with everything going on in the world, I feel like I do need to embody some of that warrior spirit. And so I may not go around thinking, I'm going to be like Thor. I got to be like Thor in this situation. I don't go around thinking that way. But by wearing this pendant, I am practicing a form of deity yoga. Let me get this, wait for this car to go by. Everything's loud. Such a loud, just such a loud world. That's why you need to wear your Thor's hammer pendant, because you live in a, a loud world, and you need to be a warrior of quiet while you yell into your phone about <laughs> finding your inner deity even if it's in disguise. But yeah, the, wearing the Thor's hammer is very much that for me. And I do feel a certain power up. And this is where, you know, my own experience, you know, it's, you know, I talk a lot about activation and, and often activation comes in the form of epiphanies or experiences where you suddenly feel that something that was always in you is suddenly potent or it suddenly makes sense. And I had an experience sort of like that, which again, I'm sure I've mentioned on here, but with the Thor's hammer pendant, where I hadn't worn it for a number of years. This is probably five or six years ago now. I don't remember when exactly it happened. But I found it. I found it in my stuff, and I was like, I really need to wear that again. And so I wore it to work one day. People noticed it. It was just not something that I would typically wear. So people kind of noticed it. And then that night, it was in the summer, I went for a walk and it was just a completely normal summer night. You know, it was warm. I think it was in July. And I'm walking around kind of aimlessly. I was feeling restless. I was feeling anxious, actually. That's what I would do. I still do it to some degree, but in the same way that I've learned how to, I've learned how to kind of make use of my anxiety. The way I used to deal with it is I used to just leave the house and start walking no goal in mind. Like I said, I still do that sometimes, but this was very much a response to my anxiety where I would just leave the house and just walk aimlessly with no goal in mind for however long I felt like. And that's what I did on this night with my Thor's hammer pendant on, my Mjolnir. 
And that night, out of nowhere, it was totally the weather men didn't forecast it just out of nowhere there was a thunder and lightning storm and it began just as a pure electricity storm where i started to see what looked like flashing over near the mountains in the direction of the mountains here you know we have mount rainier and it turned out there there was actually a lightning storm going on that nobody had predicted and it was very ominous and it was very cool and you know, I'm not going to say that wearing the Thor's hammer pendant produced this. It's not like I'm omnipotent or anything, but I will say that it did seem to be interesting timing. That I get my Thor's my old Thor's hammer necklace out, which I just kind of bought because I, you know, I was into metal and it was cool and it was my heritage. But, you know, I just out of nowhere, I decided to wear it on this random summer day. And out of nowhere, we had this electrical lightning storm and it started right as i left the house i left the house at night I just started walking my anxiety my own internal electricity was doing something and sure enough the, the great electricity in the sky the lightning was doing something as well and uh ever since then ever since that night i felt like my pendant had I felt like it was activated in some way. And so I wear it very deliberately. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I do. There's no rhythm or real thought behind it. It's just whether I feel like I need to wear that at any given time, whether I need to channel that warrior God spirit. And I do try to embody it too. It's not something that I just wear that's purely external. It's a representation of how I feel inside and also how I want to come across. Whether that has any meaning or not to anybody else doesn't matter, but it is a form of union. It is a form of deity yoga for me. And I, I probably shouldn't get into the whole trickster thing here, but I think it should be obvious why that's a thing in my mind, why I do have that Loki side. It's important, but I try not to let it dominate, whereas it used to. You know, it definitely used to. Hey, hey, buddy. Hey. Uh, hey, hey. There used to be much more of that, that Loki energy present. And I felt like I, you know, deliberately played more tricks. You know, I've mentioned how growing up my friends and I were pranksters. So, you know, I, th I think that's important, too. It's not just this magnanimous Odin... It's not just the warrior god, the thunder god. And I think I'll close with that thought, though, on the idea of Thor. Because you think about Marduk from the Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia myths, a mouthful to say, the, the mouthful of Mesopotamian myths. But, you know, Marduk's a thunder god. He was originally a god of thunderstorms, much like Thor. And, you know, there's some debate in Norse mythology over whether Thor is actually the central figure and not Odin. And I don't know that it really matters. It, again, it's that thing where we, we tend to want one guy in the same way that we want one devil, one antichrist. We only have room for one Hitler. You know, we can't fit Stalin into the equation. We tend to want one guy, one president. Um... You know, one Jesus, you know, Christianity really 
centralized things. I think that's why it's one of the reasons why I think Christianity was and is so popular is because it really centralized a lot of these ideas. You know, it focused things into these, you know, a more select cast of characters, figures. But uh, with Marduk, you know, he's very similar to Thor. He fights a serpent. You know, he, he fights this this uh, terrifying serpent. He's sort of perfect in many ways. The perfect warrior, but also an admirable figure. And Marduk, in some ways, is sort of, you know, a combination between Odin and Thor. I don't know. I shouldn't really say that. I don't know if that's true, but he kind of he kind of takes on both roles, where he's the main god, but he's also the the principal warrior. But we, we can see where all these different beliefs do have some sort of thunder god, or do have some sort of god of storms, and it's not limited to you know the, it's not limited to the Babylonians or the Scandinavians. You know, we can see where. This comes up time and time again. There tends to be a god of storms, a god of thunder, and of course there is, because in the same way that certain emotions are universal, of course certain elements, weather, storms, lightning, thunder, it doesn't get more universal and eternal than that. Um, but uh, think about what anxiety is in the way I've described it. Electricity. It's this internal electricity that seems to be activated by things outside of you, but no doubt it is coming from within you. And talking about going on my walk with my Thor's hammer and feeling activated, feeling that it was activated in some way by this external thunderstorm, this external lightning. But then also feeling this anxiety inside of myself that night too. And thinking about these gods, like Thor, like Marduk, where did their electricity come from? I think it was internal too. I think that Thor and Marduk did something with their own state of being. I think they did something with a sensation that was coming from within them. They were anxious. Because we see where these gods and demigods they're prone to some of the same sensations and feelings and in buddhism there's the realm of the jealous gods and if gods can experience jealousy they can definitely experience anxiety so maybe these storm gods maybe this thunder and lightning that they embody that they represent Maybe that partially comes from within them, and they've just learned how to harness it. They've learned how to harness that internal anxiety that we experience in the form of anxiety. That They've learned how to recognize the electricity of that experience. And in recognizing that electricity, they can do something with it. They can become the gods of thunder, the gods of lightning, the gods of storms. But also, they're still the gods of anxiety. This land is mine. God gave this land. 
to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free